0: Thanks, Brian. Can you guys hear me? Yeah? Well, good morning. How are we feeling this morning? Excited to be at church? Yeah? New Year's resolution ready? Do we have, are we a New Year's resolution kind of people? Yeah? A couple over here. Um, Have we quit on our New Year's resolutions yet? Yes? Oh no, day two. Um, Well, I'm excited to be here. As Brian said, yeah, this is... um, a series that we're working through kind of every other week through the course of uh, the month of January. And it's a series that's all about what that video kind of just unpacked a little bit. What is the invitation that Jesus presents to us in Scripture and in our lives? Um, What does it mean to accept that, to be a follower of Jesus? And before we kind of dive into all of that, I want to say one thing, because today is January 2nd, and as I said, it's a Sunday where, a week where New Year's resolutions have kicked in, so there may be some of you here today that are coming for, maybe this is your first time, maybe this is the first time you've been in a while, or those listening online, maybe you finally decided to listen to your pestering friend, to listen to a church service, and so you're finally doing that today, and so before we get into all of this, I just want to say a couple things if that applies to you. One, it's a great resolution to make, and we're glad that you're either here in person or we are glad that you are listening online. We pray that you, you keep up with that. Two, throughout the course of this series, you may feel like the only people I'm kind of specifically addressing are people who self-identify as followers of Jesus. And that's because a lot of the time, I'm going to be. However, I haven't forgotten that you're listening because I would imagine one of the reasons that you are, are either here in person today or listening is because you want to get to know a little bit more about who we are at Northridge um, and who the God is that we ultimately choose to serve. And one of the best ways that you can do that is to listen in as we engage together about how we interact with the God that we serve and who the God is that we do serve. And so, while at times you might feel like I'm not specifically talking to you, I'm certainly hoping and expecting that you're listening in. Because I too want that for you, right? To listen in and to hear who we are and what we're about here at Northridge and and who the God is that we choose to serve. Um, Matthew 28, 19. Does that ring a bell to anyone? What is Matthew 28, 19? The great... Commission, there it is, yes, thank you. Um, Jesus' final words before he ascends into heaven in the Gospel of Matthew, and he says this, "...all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age." If you have had any kind of exposure to the church or you've been going, attending church for a while, you have probably come across this verse. It is a very popular, well-preached verse, and for very good reason, because this is the verse where us as a church tends to go to find our mission, right? To go and to make disciples. And when we typically look at this verse, we typically focus on those two words, to go and to make, which is very key to do. It's essential to what Jesus' command is here for us to do. However, it also reveals what we are called to be and what we're called to make, which are disciples, right? We are called to be disciples and to make disciples, those who obey everything he has commanded us. Now that word disciple, it's a word we, we use a lot within our church context and not a lot outside of our church context. When we have a word like that, it's really easy for us to kind of, um, just kind of bubble that word around lots of church language. And unless we're super intentional about what that word actually means, sometimes its actual meaning can sometimes get a little lost. And so what does that word disciple actually mean? For those, uh, those people who are fans of linguistics, here's 20 seconds of fun for you. The word disciple is translated from the Greek word mathetes, which, because the, the New Testament was written in Greek. However, you have to go a level further because while the New Testament was written in Greek, Jesus, who would have also spoken Greek, probably did most of his dialogue, with his, especially with his disciples, who he's talking to here, in Aramaic. And so while the New Testament would have written mathetes, they would have translated it from the Aramaic word talmudim. Linguistics class, over. Um, Talmudim is what Jesus calls us to be and to make. And the reason I bothered sharing that with you this morning is because the the concept of a a Talmudim, a a group of followers, was not necessarily a Jesus thing in the first century, right? It was a a rabbi thing. Um, The reason Jesus had Talmudim and why he asked his Talmudim to go make more Talmudim is because he was a rabbi. And rabbi really just meaning a teacher. That's what he was. And if you read through the gospel message, right, one of the most common titles that people refer to Jesus as is that of a rabbi. Um, That's primarily how he was known. And, And he wasn't necessarily unique in that. He was very unique in that he was the son of God, but not necessarily unique in that he was a rabbi. There were lots of rabbis, and they all had a group of Talmudim. And so it's interesting because you can actually read about these other rabbis and Talmudims and about kind of the nature of their relationship to each other because from from our perspective, what we can learn from that is what was the goal of the Talmudim? Why would these people devote their lives to this rabbi? And what, what were they trying to accomplish in doing that? And so one writer writes this. The goal of the Talmudim in the first century was to follow, to emulate, to copy, to duplicate, and to replicate their rabbi all while serving him. It wasn't enough for the Talmudim to know what their rabbi said. The foremost goal of any Talmudim was to become like their rabbi and to do what their rabbi did. One other commentator writes this, the Talmudim were not there to observe. They were there to become so close to their rabbi that they lived exactly like him in every situation, which required total commitment on the part of the Talmudim. To be with their rabbi, to become like their rabbi, and to do what their rabbi did. That was the goal of the Talmudim. And we see that in the Gospels. We see the disciples of Jesus spend lots of time with him. right? They uproot their whole lives and just go and live and travel with this guy. There are very few stories in the Gospel message where the disciples are not with Jesus. They sought to become like him. right? You see in the Gospel message, Jesus almost kind of give it to the disciples for responding a way that he wouldn't have responded. Why? Because their goal was to be like him. So he calls them out on it when they're not doing that very well. And they sought to do what their rabbi did. Matthew 10, right? The the disciples earlier in in the gospel story follow Jesus, and they spend some time with him. And then Matthew 10, Jesus sends them out, right? To do what? To do the exact same things they had witnessed him do, right? To proclaim the gospel message, to cast out demons to cure the sick, to cleanse the leopards. Lepers, not leopards. <laughs> and I know that, that word, the word Talmudim, we typically translate disciple, and that it's a perfect translation. But it, al- it also kind of sounds a lot like an apprentice, right? If, and, and apprentice is a word we do use outside of the church, but it sounds an awful lot like that. Right, if you want to become an electrician, you typically have to do an apprenticeship, right? Where you... You follow, you get paired with someone who already knows how to do the job, and then you follow and you learn from them. But you don't do that apprenticeship so that you can understand how a house is wired. Right? You do that apprenticeship so that you can go and you can wire a house. Right? You don't do a plumbing apprenticeship so that you can understand how a house is, is piped. right? You, you do a plumbing apprenticeship so that you can go and you can Plumb a house, if that's the right word to use there. Um, If you're a lawyer, they have a version of it. It's called articling. It's essentially the same thing. Again, you don't go do your years of articling so that you can watch a TV show like Suits and just understand everything they're saying and grow some newfound appreciation for the show. No, no, you do it so that you can go and you can practice law, right? Jesus' invitation to follow him is an invitation to apprenticeship or to discipleship, whatever term you prefer. Right? It's an invitation to become like him. Right? It's about our journey to Christ-likeness. And that is exactly what Paul had on his mind when he was writing to the church in Corinth. So 1 Corinthians 3, 1-3, he writes this. And so, brothers and sisters, right, fellow apprentices of Jesus, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but rather as people of the flesh, right, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food. For you were not ready for solid food. Even now you are still not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For as long as there is jealousy and quarreling among you, you are, not of the, uh, are you not of the flesh and behaving according to human inclinations. For some of us, the message that Paul is communicating here might be clear, some of us maybe not. So let's just get on the same page. The issue Paul has with the church in Corinth, in, in Corinth is that he had to give them milk when they should have been able to handle solid food. Much like an infant can only drink milk because they aren't mature enough to handle the solid food. Right? Hence, Paul calls them infants in Christ. And there's nothing wrong with being an infant in Christ. Every person who self-identifies as a follower of Jesus at some point in their life is an infant in Christ. The problem that Paul has is that he's writing to people who he had visited and proclaimed the gospel message years prior. And he's upset that since that point, they have not matured. And it's interesting. How does he evaluate their maturity, right? He looks at the way they are living their life, and and he says, your life does not resemble the life of your rabbi Jesus. It resembles the world. You're quarreling, and you're full of jealousy. That doesn't resemble the person you are trying to become. Right? The Christian life is a life of apprenticeship to Jesus, an apprenticeship that is meant to conform us into his image into the image of our rabbi. That's all we have to do, just become like Jesus. See you next week. <laughs> no, it's, 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 not that, it's not that easy. It wasn't easy for the church in Corinth, and it certainly isn't easy for us today. It's not easy to respond out of love all the time. It's not easy to turn the other cheek. It's not easy to pray for our enemies. Um, it's not easy to be generous with our time and our money all the time. And there are individual reasons as to why some of us may struggle with those things. If you've ever done a Myers-Briggs or an Enneagram, you might be able to identify some weaknesses that you have in your life that are challenges to your apprenticeship to Jesus. But I think the overarching challenge that all of us face with all of it is that trying really hard just doesn't cut it. Um, It doesn't matter how much willpower we have, right? Our goal is Jesus, we don't have enough willpower to become Jesus. our best foot forward. Unfortunately, it usually is not good enough. Do you have any golfers out there? Anyone that plays golf? Yes, okay, perfect, this might hit. Um, for those of you who don't, you don't need to know that much about golf. This is just, this is the language I speak. Um, if shooting in the 90s is like okay, and shooting in the 70s is really good. So if I were to go up to someone who typically shoots in the 90s. Um, let's use my friend Nathan for an example. Um, Nathan, you, you typically shoot in the 90s, right? Yeah? On a good day? A little higher. Okay, that's fine. That's okay. That's okay. We're all on a journey. Um, if I were to go golfing with Nathan on a warm July morning and right before he tees off, I say, you know what, Nathan? I want you to shoot a 75 today. I think you can do it. Just, just try as hard as you possibly can to shoot a 75. Should he accept that challenge, which I feel like he would be up for, I think Nathan's going to quickly learn that, that trying really hard just isn't going to cut it, right? It doesn't matter how if he swings his driver a little harder or spends a few uh, extra minutes reading the greens, trying to figure out what the putt's going to do. It's, it's not going to work, right? He, he doesn't have it in him to shoot a 75. Um, and he's probably gonna realize he's actually probably gonna play worse right had, had he gone in with no expectation at all and probably finished pretty defeated <coughs> so if, be, if our goal is to be like Jesus right which is a big goal a bigger goal than shooting a 75 and a more important goal than shooting a 75 simply trying hard isn't really going to cut it right we need something else we need something that is not of ourselves. And in in the words of the Apostle Paul, the thing that we need is transformation. If you turn to 2 Corinthians, if you have a Bible on you, you're welcome to turn to 2 Corinthians. It'll also be on the screen here. There's this 2 Corinthians chapter 3. There's this interesting passage where Paul is talking about kind of the repercussions of what all, or the implications of all that Christ has done for us. And the backdrop to this passage is, is Exodus 34, where Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, the whole Ten Commandments thing comes down and having literally been in the presence of God, it says his face is so radiant that the other Israelites can't even look at him. So what he has to do is put a veil over his face to shield the glory of God from the Israelites. And it's kind of with that backdrop, the Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, since we have such a hope Right, Since we live out our lives on this side of the cross and all that, that Christ has done for us, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. For this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. Right? Without the new covenant that Jesus came and issued, there's this veil that remains. A veil that separates us from God. It has not been removed, Paul says, because, the only, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, the veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And this next part is really important, so let's listen in. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. A couple of things here that I think are worth our attention this morning. The first is that those who have allowed Christ to remove the veil from their face are continually being transformed into his image. Right, A transformation that Paul in the Greek talks is, is a transformation that is a day-by-day, a slow gradual transformation into his likeness, right? And in the words of Paul, with ever-increasing glory. Sometimes you may hear, if if you're in the church, this this notion of kind of the ongoing sanctification in the life of a believer. That's that's kind of what Paul's talking about here. We have a a 21st century version of that. There's nothing wrong with that word. Uh, But you often hear the word spiritual formation be tossed around. It's the same thing. It's exactly what Paul kind of has on his mind here. Spiritual formation is its transformation into the image of Jesus with ever-increasing glory. That's Paul, kind of how he, how he unpacks it. If you're familiar with anything that, that Dallas Willard writes, he, he talk, touches on this topic quite a bit. And the definition he has is, Spiritual formation is the process of increasingly being possessed and permeated by the character traits of Jesus as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher. Right? I love that. I'm going to read it one more time. Spiritual formation is the process of increasingly being possessed and permeated by the character traits of Jesus as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher. And how do we experience that? How do we experience that kind of formation and spiritual formation in our lives? Well, Paul tells us. It sa- he says it comes from the Lord, not from us. It comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit, right it's the spirit in us that does this deep work in our lives that we simply just can't do on our own the second thing i think paul wants us to know here is that and this one's big it's only by jesus removing the veil that spiritual formation is even possible verse 16 he says whenever anyone turns to the lord the veil is taken away right and in 18 he says and we all right who have had our veils removed Um, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. To experience the inward transformation or spiritual formation, if we prefer that, required to become like Jesus, then we need Jesus to remove that veil, right? And this is key. We don't want to mix up what, what God is continuing to do in and through us, through our spiritual formation, to what he has already accomplished for us, right? That's a distinction. Although they're related, it's a distinction we need to make right? Jesus has, for those who identify as followers of Jesus, he has removed the veil. The gap between us and him has been, has been taken away, right? He has given those who receive the gift of his grace full access to a relationship with him. If you're into biblical language, he has justified us. He has positionally sanctified us. We have been reborn and we have been given new life. And spiritual formation does not replace any of that, right? It begins having all of that already taken place, right? Spiritual formation does not replace grace. Spiritual formation is only possible because of grace, because Christ has accomplished all of that for us. So, quick recap. The invitation that Jesus extends to us is to be his apprentice, his Talmudim. And the goal of an apprentice is to become like your rabbi. And according to the Apostle Paul, in order to do that, when our rabbi is Jesus, then we need an inner transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? A transformation that conforms our thoughts and our heart into the thoughts and the heart of Christ, and a transformation that's only possible and only can begin once Christ has removed that veil and has given us a new life in him. So... If we, if we can grasp that, if we can wrap our minds around that, the next question that naturally kind of poses itself to us is, well, how do we go about doing that, right? Like, we hear, yes, the Spirit transforms us, but there has to be something, there has to be some kind of role that I play in that. What can I do to spiritually, or what do I need to do to spiritually form ourselves? Right? If Nathan wants to go out and shoot a 74 and trying hard simply isn't going to cut it, what does he need to do? Well, if Nathan were to come up to any of us after the service today and do a quick poll as to how he can go about shooting a 74, it doesn't matter if we don't know anything about golf. We're probably all going to tell him the same thing. He probably needs to practice. Probably some training would go a long way, right? He needs to probably go to the range. Or maybe spend some time at the putting green or getting a lesson from someone who's a little bit more advanced than he is. Um, In the words of Dallas Willard, he puts it this way. A successful performance at a moment of crisis rests largely and essentially upon the depths of a self who has wisely and rigorously prepared in the totality of its being, both mind and body. So if we deem a successful performance not as shooting a 74 but as responding the way Jesus would respond and living the way Jesus would live, then it largely and it essentially rests on how well we prepare to do so, right? It's about training because it's in our training that we are transformed by the power of the Spirit into someone who can perform successfully according to the standard that we're aspiring to be, which is set in Jesus Christ. Which means, this isn't a message we all love to hear, but this means that our apprenticeship to Jesus takes a bit of effort and a bit of training. And that might set off some alarm bells. Our inner Luthers might say, well, doesn't that just sound like we're working for our righteousness? And I assure you, it is not. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to merit. It's opposed to earning things. But we have already acknowledged that spiritual formation is an opportunity presented to us because of the grace of God, right? Once that veil has been removed, we now have this opportunity presented to us. And grace does not instantly make us like Jesus, unfortunately. I really wish it did, right? It's our training and it's our preparation through the power of the Spirit that does, right? And if you don't like that training word, we can go with preparation. Our preparation does. Does anyone know what this stands for? If we go to the next slide, what does that stand for? What would Jesus do? Yes, a very common question that the evangelical church uh, kind of promoted back in the day, and it's a great question. It's, It's this idea that when we're in a situation that we know we should probably respond the way Jesus would, the idea is that we ask ourselves that question, keep coming back to that question. What would Jesus do? And then the idea is that you then go and you do that thing. Now, I think it's a good question. I don't think it's a bad question it's not a great apprenticeship strategy. Um, because if our apprenticeship to Jesus is only focused on the moments when we're being called upon to respond a certain way, then to do what Jesus would do, and we haven't, and we haven't done any training to actually do that, just asking ourselves that question on the spot, isn't that helpful because A, if we've done no preparation, we're probably gonna forget to ask the question. If we ask the question, we might not get the right answer. And if we get the right answer, we've done no training and no preparation to actually execute, to actually do the thing that Jesus would do, right? It's the same thing that if I stepped on the hockey rink and I just decided, you know what, my preparation, or I'm just going to ask myself the question, what would Austin Matthews do here, (laughs) right? That's going to be my strategy. That's going to be my training. I'm just going to ask myself the question, what would Austin Matthews do here? It doesn't really matter if I ask that question, if I haven't done any preparation to actually be able to do the things that Austin Matthews does, right? To actually do what Jesus would do, we need to train ourselves, right? Because it's in our training that the Spirit spiritually forms us into the likeness of Jesus to then be able to go out and to live a life that Jesus would live. One final passage I want to look at this morning is Matthew eleven, twenty-eight. 28. Jesus, in preaching to the crowds, he says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I, will give, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How often do we characterize our apprenticeship to Jesus as, as this, as, as easy and of light burden? Sometimes, maybe. I'm sure we've all gone through, those who identify as followers of Jesus, go through periods where our apprenticeship or our discipleship to Jesus is the best thing in our life, and we are absolutely loving it, right? Waking up and saturating ourselves in the Word is all we want to do, and we want to share what God is doing in our life. We all, hopefully, have gone through seasons like that. We also, and maybe this is you right now, where that's just not our experience, Right where, where it feels more like a burden than it does the way Jesus is describing it here. But regardless of our experience, Jesus is telling us that there is a version of our apprenticeship to him that can provide rest for our souls and can be of light burden. Now, when, I, when, when Jesus is communicating this message that an apprenticeship to him can be easy and of light burden. He's not saying that apprenticeship to Jesus removes all the obstacles in your life, right? We all know that famous, take up your cross and follow me, right? There is a cost to discipleship with Jesus. But when Jesus describes an apprenticeship to him that can be easy and of light burden, he's telling them that in the midst of those obstacles that present themselves to us in our lives, it's possible to experience rest for our soul, right? The Apostle Paul is a perfect example of this. He's sitting in prison, essentially awaiting a death sentence, and he writes this letter to the church in Philippians, and he says, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Right? He's rejoicing in the midst of being put in a prison, possibly awaiting his death sentence because of his apprenticeship to Jesus. But despite that, he's experiencing rest for his soul. He's rejoicing. Right? But in order to experience that, it's very hard to do if we only view our apprenticeship to Jesus as being Jesus-y when we're in the spotlight, right? That's not necessarily an easy burden to carry, right? To be the, the Jesus model for some people in our lives, and, and you know they're the, you're the only Jesus influence you ha- they have in their life, and so they're looking at you, right? That's not always an easy burden to bear especially when we haven't trained or prepared to be that person. In our pursuit to be like Jesus, an easy yoke and a restful soul and a light burden is only possible if we train ourselves to be like Jesus in the moments when we're not in the spotlight, right? in the the behind-the-scenes, right? to live like Jesus lived when he wasn't performing miracles or preaching sermons or turning the other cheek. And if we do that, Right? If we live the way Jesus lived when he wasn't in the spotlight and, and put our attention to that, right? if we train ourselves to live that kind of life, then the Holy Spirit, it, the Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit will transform us from the inside out. And the Jesus-y way that we're called to live when we are in the spotlight just becomes an indication and a reflection of what's actually going on inside of us. Right? It just becomes a response to what we actually want to do. Our friend Dallas says this, The secret of an easy yoke is simple. It is the intelligent, the informed, unyielding resolve to live as Jesus lived in all aspects of his life, not just in the moment of a specific choice or decision. And so what exactly it looks like to prepare or to train or to live as Jesus lived in the moments when he wasn't in the spotlight, we're going to focus on that the next time we're together. Um, But for now, I just want to do a couple things. One thing I want us to do right now and one thing I want us to do together and commit to doing together, maybe later today or maybe the rest of this week, the thing I want us to do later today and the the rest of this week is to just reflect on our apprenticeship to Jesus, right? Do we see it as about becoming like him? Is that how we view our kind of walk with Christ and that invitation to follow him? Do we view it that way, right? Do we view it as only taking place when we're on the spot, or do we put some kind of preparation into that moment? And if we do, how, how are we preparing ourselves? And maybe if you're up for it, maybe these next couple weeks, we, we put focused attention on that, right? In the best way we know how, in reading, and prayer, in, it's not just in quiet times, and enjoying fellowship with fellow believers, um, right? Or if, if fasting is something you, you're familiar with, maybe it's in doing that. And just see what kind of result that yields. Um, worship team, you guys, you guys can come up. Um, the thing I want us to do right now is worship, right? You'll remember I said that Jesus was not unique in that he was a rabbi, and while that is true, he was unique in some of the ways he chose to live out that that title. Um, a typical rabbi in the first century would wait for kind of prospects to present themselves to them, and then they would handpick the best of the best to choose and allow them to follow uh, themselves. And often most people were turned away. Um, the elite of the elite, elite only made it. Jesus, though, he didn't wait for people to approach him, right? He approached them, and he didn't approach the elite of the elite. He approached, he approached everyone, right? Fishermen, tax collectors, Pharisees, women, children, everybody. Um, and I, I realize that in this message, I may have been talking as if Jesus was just this first century rabbi but he's not right we know that the most essential and profound message of of in the new testament is that jesus christ rose and he is alive and he is with his father in heaven right now inviting us to continue to be his apprentices right it's not it's not a an opportunity that we're worthy of but it's an opportunity he's given to us um and i think that's that's worthy of our worship this morning right i'm just going to pray and then we'll we'll worship together Dear Lord, we come before you this morning grateful. Grateful for an opportunity that you've presented to us. Grateful for everything that you've done for us on our behalf. Things that we couldn't accomplish on our own. And now you've you've put us in this position where we have the opportunity to follow the God of the universe. Um, And you've presented us this amazing template in your son to follow and walk in his footsteps. So I pray as this year of 2022 rolls around, I pray that this would be a year where we, we put focused attention into seeking to become more and more like you, yes. and help us and allow us to find the balance between what is the role that we play in that, and what is the role that you play in that, and I pray that we really just see this as a partnership with you and your spirit to walking this life of apprenticeship and seeking to become more and more like you, not for our benefit, but for the benefit of the people around us. We're so, so grateful um, just for everything that you've given to us and the position you've put us in. And I pray that this would be something that we respond to this morning and in this week and in the days ahead. And I pray these things in your name. Amen.